0: Hello,
1: and welcome to episode 10 of the Human Odyssey podcast. What you just heard was an excerpt from the song Slow Down by Master Ace and MF Doom, two absolutely brilliant rappers and beatmakers from the Big Apple. I'm your host, Scanner, joined always by my co host, Jamie, and today we're talking to Danny Harris. Executive Director of Transport Alternatives, TA, one of the major organizations fighting for a car-free world and safer, cleaner transport in the great state of New York. Danny, how's it going? I'm, I'm okay. Thanks for asking. How are you both? Good, good. Not good. bad, not bad. Where are you right now? New York?
0: I'm in New York City in my bedroom slash office. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'm looking out onto a, a, a beautiful New York City skyline
1: yeah as you can see, this is my uh bedroom slash office as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of us are having that problem right now that's right so danny, you work for uh t a uh transport alternative, but before that you were quite busy uh doing a lot of different things i mean, as I read through kind of your resume um I saw that you started out as a policy advisor on uh so from like the Balkans to uh, even working for the Treasury, can you tell us a little bit about maybe how you began doing that and then went on to do things like feastly <laughs> the uh, cooking um, experience uh, app or website i 'm not sure uh, and then on to transport
0: sure so I'm, i am I think at the core i 'm the storyteller, so the reality is that a lot of the my career decisions, um, you know, may, may seem to, to jump around, but, you know, as a storyteller, you can look back and, you know, you do your best to try to weave a co- cohesive, authentic narrative that keeps people engaged. But I, mm-hmm. I think for me, the short version of my background is, is really two things. So my, my mom and all four of my grandparents are, are refugees. So, you know, a lot of my sort of personal experience of growing up and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the stories that were told at home and the experiences that we had with family members was, was rooted in, in, in that experience. Uh, and then the other is that I moved around a lot as a kid. So, you know, I was always moving into a new community, had to figure it out, make new friends, you know, go to playgrounds and sort it out. And so those were really kind of the two through lines of, you know, my first job after college was, I guess, going into the family business. And I did refugee work with the International Rescue Committee. And, then uh, I went to go to Treasury to after graduate school to work in the small office that was looking at how do you get aid to high risk areas and was also you know in the aftermath of nine eleven looking at the national national security implications of of international finance um, and then I actually had a panic attack I was living in D.C. And I spent all of my days, you know, understanding the nuances of policies in far off countries. And I knew nothing about my neighborhood, didn't know my neighbor's names, didn't know the school down the street. Uh, So I started this project called People's District, where every day for a thousand days I went to interview a stranger all across D.C. And it just became this amazing tapestry of narratives that you could layer on top of place that, you know, in a way it it wasn't just about sort of connection and empathy it was that you know cities have these incredible stories and the people mm-hmm. have these you know really rich vibrant stories to tell that go back for generations and mm-hmm. you know it's it's too simplistic to talk about how a neighborhood changes or gentrification or you know, these are obviously very real factors and they need to be told through the stories of the people who have experienced them mm-hmm. So it was this really incredible journey across every corner of Washington and talking to all kinds of amazing people. And that really sort of led me to look at sort of the urban fabric as probably the single biggest factor in terms of trying to bring about empathy, compassion, changing, you know, the way that people live and their access to opportunity. So from there, I went to the Knight Foundation to focus on, you know, from a philanthropy side of investing in cities in Silicon Valley, then I I came back to New York and spent some time actually working with Ford Motor Company to help them think about the future of mobility. And then I I got this incredible opportunity to be Executive Director of Transportation Alternatives. And, you know, there's no better organization around the country that's, you know, fighting for a people-focused city. And that's really looking at walking, biking, and public transportation as this, you know, sort of central plank of how you expand opportunity, how you create a more environmentally just racially just place. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, we can talk about sexy goals of what we're trying to accomplish, but I think at the end, you know, we should think of transportation like a utility where it just works and you get pissed off and angry when the power goes out, but that happens once in a while. And most other days, you never talk about it. Just imagine how great your day would be if you didn't have to start by commuting or complaining about your commute, which is like every New Yorker's experience Um, everybody has a you know some story about the subway failed them well it failed me even worse or it took me two hours to get here well it took me four hours we should just sort of move beyond that and transportation should just work
2: one of our guests we spoke to was talking about personal benefits they have from the pandemic because they're getting to work from home so they don't have to commute and they get to spend more time with their family do you do you think this is kind of like one possible good aspect of the pandemic Is is kind of an experiment in this sort of lifestyle
0: so, you know, it's hard to, to downplay how how destructive the pandemic has yes. been yes. and, you know, at the same time, you know, I'll take just New York for an example, but you could obviously play this out across any city. You know, I, I think now like that moment in the matrix where you can pick a pill, a blue pill or a red pill and, you know, as transportation and, and you know, safe streets and you know, people focus on cities for people, We've been preaching this gospel for, for decades, which is, you know, we need cities that prioritize people. And for the first time in maybe almost most people's lives, they could look outside of their window. 8.6 million New Yorkers could look outside of their window and see what their city looked like without traffic. Streets yeah, yeah. were empty. Kids could walk outside and play. There was space for social distancing. And for the first time, a lot of people started to ask why do we give all of this incredible space to the movement and storage of vehicles? Mm -hmm. And Maybe they didn't think about it in that way. Maybe they thought of it as, wow, look at all these things I can do or, you know, I I need that space for my restaurant. But, you know, when else in history, you know, outside of maybe a snowstorm or after when your team wins a championship or you have a a catastrophic event like 9-11, do people really have a chance to look at their city with a different set of eyes, especially for a prolonged period? So, you know, I think that my hope coming out of that is that, you know, those those windows into something different forces us to reimagine what normal is. And so no city should go back to normal because normal was broken pretty much everywhere, especially in New York. So when we talk about normal in New York, it shouldn't be, well, normal is honking and traffic and pollution and, you know, kids and the elderly who can't cross the street. Normal should be. We should reimagine what normal looks like that actually provides better outcomes for everybody
1: yeah this uh this really reminds me of Brussels, so I live in in Belgium at the moment, and uh Brussels once a year has a car free day where the kind of whole center uh of Brussels bans cars and i I'm pretty sure like if you try and go with the car, you'll get a really, really heavy fine like it's not something to joke around with, and I accidentally went to Brussels, I live about an hour away. I accidentally went to Brussels on that day, kind of forgetting that it was car-free day, and I genuinely let go of my bag and my jaw dropped when I got out of the the train and just saw one of the busiest, normally busiest streets of Brussels, busy with cars all the time, uh, just full, full, full of hundreds, if not thousands, of people on bikes, on you know, on little scooter, like just on on foot. It, it was absolutely amazing. You just the city felt totally different, like so. And I, I just the the next day when cars were back, you know, I felt the sense of loss of of like, wow, this is I've been shown the sort of future, or not even a future, an alternative present, past, yeah, past, yeah. and and it can be like this. And then and then right. when you yeah. see the possibility, you just ask yourself, well, why isn't it? Um, and I guess one of the things that you kind of told us that you might want to talk about today and i think this is a good segue is is one of the reasons is people are maybe a bit addicted to their their cars and and they are so set in their ways that it becomes really hard if not impossible for some people to change that way of uh, of doing things
0: yeah well, well i think you know first of all to to you know the amazing notion of a car free day you know i I I'm fully supportive and I think it's a wonderful window in. I also think that there's a huge challenge when, you know, cities set that up. It's like, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of a birthday. It like, happens once a year. It's a really special day, but you know, like you only get cake on your birthday and you can only have cake and ice cream on your birthday. And you can only be with all your friends on your birthday. And it's this one day that sort of contains all the wonder. And then the other days are yeah. just supposed to be like every other day. And, you know, it's wonderful to give people that window into it, but, you know, it, it should never be built up like a festival, like something that comes into town and leaves. It should be about, you know, using that as, you know, a blockhead to you know, sort of gain more traction, mm-hmm. you know, for whether it's temporary urbanism or, you know, helping people to bring these tools into their neighborhoods. So, you know, I think obviously there's sort of a broader system and, and I think part of it and what I I really, you know, I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, especially because you know I think where we as activists see a lot of the you know the real pushback is at this very hyper local community level um, and, and i've been equating it a lot to you know to to addiction and you know you know you can look in the communities that have been most impacted by opioids that are you know developed by pharmaceutical companies where there was clearly intent about what those products were to do, and you know they were meant to, to do some good, but they you know, spiraled out of control. And then, you know, the implications have been traumatic, devastating for communities. Yeah. You know, you would never go into a community that was riddled with opioid addiction and talk about treatment mechanisms that, you know, work and then let the addicts say, well, you know, we don't want that in our neighborhood or, you know, that, that can never work here. Or if you bring that, yeah. that will ruin my small business. Um, you sort of have a series of health best practices that are driven by public health that realize that there are you know, implications not just to an individual of opioids, but to an entire community. And you can translate that, and it may be a bit you know, stark and provocative, but I wanna put that out there. You know, car manufacturers have sold us this false bill of goods. You know, originally, they wanted to talk about you know, the freedom of movement drives human progress. And yes, you know, the car has brought tremendous things to our nation. And if we just look at this moment now where, you know, the vast majority of of all vehicles that are produced by American auto manufacturers are assault vehicles. They're SUVs, they're light trucks that are are basically built knowingly to be aggressive, that are increasingly killing pedestrians and cyclists, you know, just try to put your child in front of an SUV and you, you won't even be able to see them from the driver's seat. Yeah. And so you have these car manufacturers that are not just building bigger cars, they're putting people increasingly in debt because you know, these vehicles are 40, 50, $70,000. And you have the consumers who are addicted to these products and the roads that are, they're built on and the oil, they're the ones at a local community meeting who are fighting with us against bike lanes. You don't have Ford mm-hmm. Motor Company showing up at community meeting after community meeting with their lobbyists saying you know, no to bike lanes and, and no to public transportation and more cars. You have local individuals who, who truly believe that, you know, whether, you know, at least in America, when you talk about gun rights, there's an amendment that people can pull back. Yeah. There's no amendment about car ownership and
1: parking. Yeah.
0: Moses did not descend from the Temple Mount. <laughs> the <ability laughs> They'll all
1: have an SUV
0: for generation to generation. Hallelujah. And yet you end up having these individuals who so equate a vehicle to freedom and and that that vehicle can be, you know, general motors can sell a Hummer. Um, And yet, you know, the things that we want to do, we have to fight about the speed of an e-bike or, you know, small amounts of space. And, And so, you know, part of, you know, when you, when you understand addiction, part of it is just sort of recognizing that you're powerless over something. And, you know, too many individuals are not even sort of looking at their monthly pay statements and saying, How much money am I wasting on this vehicle that, you know, controls my life because it means that I don't have options when I leave my house. It's the only way for me to get to the supermarket. It's the only way for my kids to go play. And also that vehicle is the reason that people are dying on the street. It's the reason for air pollution. It's the reason that people are locked into poverty. So, you know, we fight in all of these different venues. And I think that a core of it is just helping people to see, That the reality of of, transportation advocacy is to give individuals more options. If you live in a community where if you walk out of your house and there's no other way for you to get around but for you to be able to afford having a vehicle and, you know, to have to use roads to drive to get absolutely anywhere, then your city has failed you. The car companies have failed you. The oil companies have failed you. Advocates don't fail you. They don't fight against us. Fight against the people who are not only taking away your options, but forcing you to pay for them. You know, The average car in America costs an individual about $9,000 a year. Mm. You know, mm. A bike you pay for once, a bus pass you pay yeah. for you know, monthly.
1: Yeah, no, that's quite ridiculous. I, I think um, it, it seems to me like the US maybe is kind of a very specific case in the world for a lot of things. Uh, whenever things are related to freedom. I, I don't know how much of this obviously something that we're taught by the internet or by TV is a sort of stereotype, but it does seem like the idea of freedom in the U S is like attached to so much um, kind of individual behavior that may hurt others is still seen as something that you're free to do. Like, I don't know, I think we've all seen, you know, marches against kind of masks or social distancing and, and this whole idea that, well, it's my right to be able to, do something that would hurt or not other people like it's this idea that i'm free to do this because it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt other people like directly uh, in the sense of like physically hurts them in this moment but just the fact that it could doesn't really seem to get into people's heads much and um yeah i think think about that
0: yeah, I mean, I, I I think you know one of my one of my favorite writers on this is is, uh, is Victor Frankel, and he wrote and mm. he wrote and uh, Man Search for Meaning. He writes at the end about that America really needs two statues. So on the East Coast we need the Statue of Liberty, and on the West Coast we need the Statue of Responsibility, because you you can't just give people freedom without that responsibility of what that leads to. So, you know, you can talk about masks, you can talk about SUVs, you can talk about guns, but simply giving people the tools because they believe that they have some God given, right. Or, you know, founders centuries ago use words that can be interpreted in the present day. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you, if you walk into a a showroom and you, you decide to buy a a 6,500 pounds, assault vehicle so that you can protect your kids or because you want to occasionally, you know, move a couch once a year, Mm-hmm. there are real responsibilities that, that you, that you have to take on, you know, for example, in an age when everyone has a cell phone or smartphone, and they're also using it while they drive and you have <laughs> these assault vehicles where the interior has, you know, huge touch screens and a million things that light up all of those things impede your, you know, they, they, they're pulling at your freedom and they're taking yeah. away that sense of responsibility that you take on when you decide you're basically going to drive a tank through a, through a residential neighborhood that can also go 200 miles an hour. I mean, we can certainly find a, you know, we should be able to find a balance. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, where we're at as a country, especially now, we seem to be so far from that, but you know, the hope is that it starts to swing back around and people can start to, again, like that New York example of the blue pill and the red pill, you know, people just simply have to start to see it. Mm-hmm. They may not yeah. have a name for it, but they have to, they have to see it. They have to touch it. They have to feel it. Um, and then they can start to ask those, those fundamental questions. And then hopefully they can start to find that there are proven solutions for this. So the things that we're talking about today are not, you know, they are innovative and revolutionary to some communities, but, you know, reduce speed limits, making roads narrower, you know, giving space to things like parks or restaurants, bike lanes, bus lanes. Like, this is not, transformational ideas i don't need to get up and give a ted talk like innovation pivot amazing yeah. this is literally the things that our cities have been built upon for centuries and now we've just sort of forgotten because we're so addicted to these these assault vehicles that are killing yeah. us
1: and and speaking of assault i mean some people might think the word is used uh very like loosely but but it it really is that i mean i've seen uh Transl has been keeping a list of people who've been killed by um biking or or walking through New York City and and uh I'd seen that unfortunately um Clara Kang uh, a nurse had been killed recently um and I saw the you guys try, TA has been trying to use different words than accident um with this notion that that car accidents are preventable and that they're not these like the, yeah, the, I, I guess that they're not accidents, that they are something that we can prevent, that we can do something against and that, that maybe we should stop using that word accident to see everything in a different light. I was wondering if you could maybe expand a little bit on how New York, uh, how sort of likely it is to be killed in New York City, walking or biking. The kind of, you know, I think you said that it's the 19th cyclist this year. And maybe why that use of the word accident is, is problematic.
0: Yeah, well, look, I mean, let's expand it out. You know, globally, every year, there are between three to five million people who are killed in traffic violence, 30 to 50 people who are injured. You know, in New York, in, in the United States, it's about 36,000 a year just from traffic violence. And you can add, you know, I think even upwards of 50,000 a year that die from other issues, especially from from, you know, public health concerns that relate to things like uh, pollution. Um, so if you start as, as a baseline and say three to five, you know, what else? What else is taking away three point five million people a year that is completely preventable? You know, what, what are other things out there? And the the, the 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 challenge, you know, there are incredible challenges here. But you know, if we sort of break it down, one about terminology is when we call it an accident, it removes responsibility. So, you know, we we hear it in all these communities, you know, somebody was driving, they lost control, they took their eyes off the road, somebody dies. And let's take it from the other perspective, which is if you are a victim and and we have the incredible privilege of working with hundreds of families that have either lost a loved one or been seriously injured, you know, we don't hear enough about their stories, which is... You know, somebody, you know, uh, somebody is crossing the street with a, with a child um, and, you know, the, the child is killed. And then the stories that are told that start with the police or the media is that, you know, the child ran away from the parent into the road or the pedestrian wasn't wearing bright clothing or, you know, some other reason to blame the victim. So one, again, what we start to see is it's not just that the driver was not at fault, but that. Actually, the individual, you know, the the four year old instead of not the SUV was responsible. And then what we see time and time again is that now that there are videos everywhere, you know, the videos show that, yes, the driver was at fault. The Mm -hmm. driver was speeding. The driver was on her cell phone. But these narratives are convenient because if we go back to that addiction piece, think of how many people have cars. People don't get in cars and say, I'm going to run somebody over today. Mm -hmm. It's also that belief that is being told of the consumer of these assault vehicles that these things happen, but they're accidents. And when they do happen, and it probably won't happen to you, but if it does happen to you, here is sort of the the narrative and the, the soft landing that you will receive. You know, you, you won't go to jail for a long time. You know, the narrative will be placed on somebody else. And this doesn't happen in every case, but you see this play out time and time and time again. Yeah. We just simply do not have, the tools and the language, it is almost as if um, and anvils will randomly drop out of the sky in our cities and just land on somebody. Mm-hmm. And our elected leaders will say, well, you know, it's an anvil. We didn't know where it came from. It just dropped out of the sky. It was random. You know, thoughts and prayers. You know, we'll, we'll put a protective space over this street corner. But it happens every day. And we, you know, we sort of assume for some reason that we have no control over it the reality is we do have agency. There are cities that have achieved vision zero, you know, places like Oslo had, had no fatalities last year.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've got to say Oslo, just a little side note. I absolutely love Oslo. I've been only once in my life for a weekend, um, a weekend for a conference and uh, the amount of electric cars, first of all, like the streets are pretty big considering, but the thing is there's so few cars and the cars are mostly, it seemed to me, all electric, and it was so peaceful. Like, the, there was just no noise at all in the city. You could just hear people. That's it. No cars. That was yeah. uh, that was something that really shocked me, and I can't imagine that being in, for example, in New York City. Like going into New York City and feeling that same feeling I felt in Oslo would be insane.
0: Again, I, I think this goes back to what normal is. So, I just want to reiterate this: that we have been sold lies about what normal is in the city. We've been told a lie. We've been sold a lie that you need a car to get around, that streets, that cities should be chaotic places that are filled with collisions and, and anger and noise and honking and pollution. You know, we've been sold this lie that, you know, we have to tell our children, you know, that the biggest thing that they fear as a child is how to cross the street or that we teach them how to bike in a park and then tell them, okay, well, you can never leave that park on the bike unless you're with, you know, unless you're next to me on a protected space out in, out in a, you know, a park or some trail somewhere. Like, these are lies. These are, these, this is sort of the, you know, the, this, this car, like the the transportation system has become the opiate of the urban masses. It, it just sort of, it, it lulls us into this sense that the city is not ours, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you take and, and amplify that, you know, by infinity as you get into lower income communities of color, where not only do you have less places for people to, to, for children to play, you have, you know, higher rates of asthma and air pollution. You have higher rates of traffic violence. You have longer commute times, which, which directly connect to economic opportunity. You know, in New York city, you have nurses have the longest commute time in New York city as, as a group. So that was, yeah. Significant and a tragedy before COVID, and now add COVID to that. You have communities in in the South Bronx that have the worst health indicators in all of New York State. Why? Because they sit at this asthma triangle where, you know, most of the diesel trucks that are delivering or dropping off in New York pass through these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that is not a coincidence.
2: A question I wanted to ask is: Would you say, in addition to this kind of addiction to this car lifestyle would you say that in these road spaces cyclists and maybe even pedestrians are stigmatized to an extent
0: yeah i think that's exactly right look at what success means in in too many communities you know success is not you know having um, having sort of the ability to have options and to walk around or take the bus because it's a dignified way to get around success in too many ways is having a big, beautiful car, a fancy car. And, and that's, that's everything from, if you are in, um, you know, I I lived in San Jose, California, um, and there we were really focused on trying to, to build better bike infrastructure. And San Jose has one of the largest Vietnamese communities outside of Vietnam. And so, you know, as you obviously start to, understand and work with the community, what you realize is that, you know, not for, for everybody, but for many individuals, bicycles were tied to poverty and were tied to what they had left in Vietnam. And so when you talk to a few people, they would say, well, you know, could you imagine if my cousin back in Vietnam saw me riding a bicycle on Instagram? So and I think, again, we sort of, we sell this vision that these are sort of outward displays of self and identity and, but, you know, there's also huge pieces of toxic masculinity. Like, if, you know, if you want to feel, you know, if you want to feel a certain way, go, like, go take an axe and, and chop wood. Don't you know, <laughs> you buy a 70,000 uh, pound, you know, light truck and drive around thinking that you're, you know, you're in the Fast and Furious yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know all these things again are, are interrelated so it means that you know the, the power the agency the to- toxic masculinity is tied you know to some super super duty ford f350 that's built where the front end looks like it's coming at you uh, as opposed to <laughs> walking or biking or taking mm-hmm. the bus where maybe people think you're poor or you don't have options or you know, you're some radical environmentalist. Like, No, maybe you just like to have that time. Maybe you feel better when you ride a bike. Maybe you mm-hmm. can have a car and can drive occasionally, but this is just a much more convenient, pleasant way for you to get around or to have yeah. more time with your kids.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, I kind of, um, I'm really interested in this notion that you brought up of people who oppose you in, for example, town hall meetings and, and such. Uh, because I guess we, Do have maybe maybe it's a a kind of false idea, but we I I think a lot of us have this idea that uh, car manufacturers do have these kind of people going around lobbying against you know increases in bike lanes or in public transport, and instead pushing for that single individual transport uh, means of transportation. But what you said just a little bit earlier uh, in this episode is that no in fact the people the opposition you encounter is from private individuals from people who just don't want to give up what they have can you can you tell me a little bit about that because i'm i was really surprised to to hear that
0: well look it's both i mean i i think at the highest level you have what i call car washing so you know the same way that every brand is trying to be green or about me too or about blm mm-hmm. right now you know the car manufacturers are the worst so they talk about i mean. You can read any statement from, you can hear the the great sound of New York City <laughs> in the background. But, you know, you open any, um, you know, CEO speech from a car manufacturer and they talk about the future of connected and sustainable and da-da-da-da. And then, you know, that usually either starts or ends with, and we're, we're going to go big on SUVs and light trucks and the future is going to be electric. So, one, you know, we know that electric cars are not the future.
1: No, I, I want to
0: restate that electric cars are not the future. It's,
1: it's refreshing to hear someone say that because way too many times in the environmental movement, we, we hear push for electric cars, and right. on this podcast they are not the future. Yeah, that we've talked to people uh, who have told us very clearly that we just they're a terrible, terrible idea they will just further different problems.
0: Yeah, and you know, neither are AVs. I mean, you look at even the particulates that come out of things like brake pads and tires, and you know they have high relationships with things like brain cancer. So, you know, this is a basic geometry question, which is our cities have a limited amount of space, especially on our roads, and so there are only a certain number of things that we can put on them. So it doesn't matter. Again, I'm sure if people have seen these images of you know car versus electric car versus autonomous car. They're all roughly the same size, and they're all taking over our cities. But you know, coming back to the, the auto manufacturers, you know, just because you take a Hummer and you make it electric, it's like me selling a cruise missile that runs on compost. It, it doesn't matter. It's these, you know, sort of small details and words you add onto it that still has you know destructive um, capabilities. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I think everything that we're seeing from the car manufacturers is you know, there's sort of these dinosaurs that are holding on to these last this last hurrah. And, you know, what's also incredibly disappointing is you just have this pissing contest now between Elon Musk and his, you know, cyber truck that can withstand a a, a allegedly withstand a sledgehammer. And now it'll be this arm race arms race. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, one other thing I want to talk about with electric cars and, and it's the other thing that actually really worries me is because car manufacturers, especially a company like Dodge, I mean, Dodge doesn't sell cars, they incite violence. Just look, if you look at their ads, it, it, is sort of, it is the worst of toxic masculinity and violence and vehicles. Hmm. And for these companies that have built so much of their reputation about tying a car to this, this essence of who you are as a man and this toxic masculinity, imagine how much harder they're going to have to work to sell you that same vehicle that no longer runs on gasoline or, or diesel. No, so no. it's going to mean that the 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 next round or the, the transition into electric for a lot of these individuals are going to be electric cars that are bigger and faster than they need to be. And why? Yeah. Because they have to overcompensate for that masculinity because they remove this one element, which is it doesn't run on gas. So you have to make electric seem more powerful, stronger than it needs to be. So look, it, it, if electric cars look like you know, the way that they used to before, you know, GM killed it off of when the, the, it was the, the death of the electric car, that, that great movie. Um, there are options that can certainly work. But right now we have so corroded the minds of individuals about what a car is and represents that this transition, you know, I, I think will be even more deadly, you know. And I think the electric hummer is, is, is unfortunately one of the worst examples.
2: I'd, I'd really like to... Ask um, what what? How from your experience with trying to kind of demotorize public spaces in you know dense cities like New York, um, I get I guess specifically with officials, how, I, I guess there is like they could resist with economic arguments saying how we you know everyone should have a car, but if, if there are genuine alternatives, how for actual officials and policymakers, how much do you think their kind of Sucked in by this um, kind of cultural car addiction rather than, you know, kind of a hard uh, economic argument?
0: Well, well I think it, it, it comes down to ideology and leadership as a starting point. So, you know, you have like Mayor Hidalgo in Paris who basically says, We're building a 15 minute city. We are going to move incredibly fast and you're, you're going to catch up. And you, a lot of you are not going to like this. And I, I've family in Paris who are constantly telling me about how much harder their commute is and how much worse they think the city is. And I I promise you that that city will be better and that over time, people will forget about, you know, these immediate challenges and and it'll just unlock more opportunity there. I think you see similar things happening in London where you end up having some sense of urgency that's typically, and I I look more in the European context, but, you know, there it's about air quality and climate. I think here Mm -hmm. in America, we still can't agree that that's an issue um but i think even the mayors that do so if, if i take you know our copenhagen. great climate mayor Oof. yeah copenhagen or even if you look here in new york where you know our great climate mayor quote-unquote bill de blasio yeah you know w- we'll talk about these things but if he really wanted to do it he controls the streets and he could bring about the most revolutionary change to new york city in generations and undo the legacy of people like robert moses the great builder who also you know, built and destroyed much of the city, especially locking communities of color into generational poverty and destroying those neighborhoods, you know, a leader with a vision and looking at streets as an asset instead of a liability could completely transform what that looks like. So, you know, I I think it's incumbent on on leaders to to really take, I would say three perspectives. Um, One is, to look at the amount of public space that is wasted on car movement and storage and to ask within that what revenue what, what what revenue are we deriving so in new york city we have 3 million free parking spaces so if we decided as a city we're going to offer free par- we're going to offer parking let's charge for it let's take a new curb policy and let's say okay you know this is no longer a god given right you want to be able to bring your car into the city we have congestion pricing and we're going to start charging you to, to put your car around that's one The second is to start to say, what else could we do in that space? So in the aftermath of COVID, we see things like open restaurants. There are 10,000 restaurants in New York city that are now staying alive and hundreds of thousands of workers because those restaurants have taken over either some part of, of, you know, a parking space or sidewalk space. And and those restaurants would not be able to survive, but for that space. And, and so add retail add cultural institutions Add Broadway, add the opera, add schools, add, add, add. And then you start to see how many other people desperately need this space and even needed it before, but they didn't have the language around it. And then the third is the human toll, which is, you know, electeds need to hear from both individuals that have been personally impacted by traffic violence and from the people who, you know, may be fortunate that they, they, they don't know somebody who was killed or they were injured, but it impacts them every day. My 95-year-old grandmother, she passed away, unfortunately, two years ago, but she lived in the city for over 70 years, and she was cogent, and she could walk until the day that she died, and for the last years of her life, she was terrified to leave her apartment because she could not cross the avenue that she had crossed for, for decades because it was too big and it was too fast, and she didn't feel the confidence to walk by herself, so the city has failed her. In that this was her city that she no longer felt she had the ability to even go outside and explore because of our streets. And then the other side is that, you know, I as a parent with a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and it's not just because I do this work, but what terrifies me is, is them crossing the street, of having intersections that aren't daylighted, of having, you know, vehicles that will not see these children, of, you know, people that are moving in every direction between trucks and buses and garbage trucks and, and SUVs. And, and I feel that the city is not built to protect my children. It's built for their convenience, but it's not built for us.
1: And at the end of the day, that's one of the first duties of, of politicians is to protect their citizens.
0: Right. And citizens can have cars and that's fine. But, you know, our city needs to be built for people. I know it's a simplistic concept. I know it comes out of obviously a lot of the work of Jan Gehl and in Copenhagen. And I think it is the most fundamental concept that you know we add, need to add layers on top of it, which is you know it needs to be built yes, so that all people can th- can thrive. But we need to create indicator species. I mean, it should be it, it needs to be children, it needs to be older adults, it needs to be people with limited abilities, it needs to be our most vulnerable, especially communities of color. I mean, we need to understand how the city that works for people can specifically support each of these individuals. Um, and then if we're able to do so, it, it, it elevates opportunity for absolutely everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's very true. Um, I I want to talk about this uh this little spat maybe that that you've had uh, or your your fellow um TA people have had with the uh, the current mayor of New York um, De Blasio. So in the what forty six years that TA has been uh working for alternatives to, to transport, it's done. It seems to have done a lot, like from what I've been researching, it, it seems to have achieved quite a bit, um, including one of the first America's first protected bike lane, it seems, and managed to lower the city speed limit as well um, for the first time in, in 50 years. So it's had quite a few victories, it seems. But do you think that what's coming next, what what you guys would like to do in terms of this kind of revolutionary change, is that something that TA is prepared to fight not prepared but equipped as well to to fight for and something that you know the current mayor or maybe a future mayor uh may actually have the power and will to do or do you kind of see it a little bit as a sort of lost fight because um, New York is so big and 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 there's so many interests competing
0: so uh, there's no lost fight I mean we are small and scrappy and and you know, relentless, and you have to be in this work. And you know, for for almost fifty years now, TA has been on the front line of, of pushing really big ideas. I, you know, where I think our work is most effective is is working in partnership of you know listening to local voices and and you know looking both across the city and across the world at, at what's working um, and also what's working and how we can make that applicable to New York. You know when when Vision Zero came to to not just to the United States but to New York under Mayor De Blasio and, and TA was a a, a big supporter um, in helping to make that happen. You know ultimately what it did was it laid out a goal of getting to zero fatalities and then a, a, a pathway of how to make that happen. You know when when we look at New York's challenges, especially under this mayor is that you know we as advocates and community members have had to fight so hard for pilot projects so we can take like a, a the busway on 14th street this may not be you know it's ultimately like our, our bus rapid transit we have a now a, a main corridor that used to have one of the slowest buses and is now one of the fastest because we we took away trip traffic and now it's mostly for um, for buses and delivery um And so it took a number of years and it was really the impetus was the L train was going to shut down. And so looking for options, you know, the problem here and the problem under the mayor was we fought so hard to get one and then one worked incredibly well, I mean, incredibly well. So one would think, I mean, I I worked in startups, so you think you have something that works and you have a patron and so you scale it. We should have a hundred. We don't. We're still fighting trench warfare even after we win even after we win and we have the data that suggests this works and it makes people better and it makes people's lives better and it makes communities better. I mean, we had the same data from, from Times Square under Jeanette Sadi Khan. Where are more of those? Where where is the mayor saying we know it works and it makes things better for business and it makes things better for commuters and make things better for neighborhoods. We should have a hundred busways. We should have a bike network across the entire city. The model of Times Square should be in every commercial area. I mean, Flushing, Queens, other neighborhoods should have this. We don't have the leadership to to scale what we know already works. I mean, so we can talk here because of your audience. We can talk about the amazing things that are happening in, you know, pick your favorite city, Bogota, uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Manila, uh, Copenhagen. But, But in New York City. I can point to you over a dozen amazing examples within even the last 10 years that work, that are providing real-time value and that we have not scaled. Mm
1: -hmm. So what's standing standing in the way then? Leadership. I mean, the political will and the leadership
0: to, to realize that, you know, we talk a lot about intersectionality, especially now. But, you know, what's important to understand is that you know, we as advocates and elected officials limit the ability of our cities when we think of transportation as a silo, you know, sort of this, this one narrow piece that's only for, you know, the, the, the bike crazies or the bus riders. No, we're not talking about buses and bikes. We're talking about opportunity and health. Until our elected leaders see that. I mean, coming from a foundation perspective in the past, Funders don't see this. Funders will talk about racial equity and environmental injustice, and they have no portfolio for transportation. You want to talk about education? You can't have that conversation without talking about how kids and teachers get to school. You want to talk about healthcare? Talk about the commute times of essential workers. I mean, all of these things are are ultimately tied. Again, public transit or transit is not is, is the lifeblood of, of a city of a community. And again, our goal, our shared goal is that this is a utility and I know it's not sexy. And I think we should have, you know, Elon Musk wants to sell us cyber trucks and somebody wants to sell us, you know, uh, cars that fly. Like, that is not the future. The future is that this is uh, we have sort of this seamless city where you can get out of your house and you have an array of options and whether it's a mobility as a service or something else, that it just works. It moves around and it's not double or triple parking. It's not a cop parking in the bike lane. It, it's not these small pieces. It's like your Wi-Fi or your electricity or your water. And it just works. And I know that that's sort of a, a far reaching idea and, uh, you know, and, and no one's fully figured that out. But I think if, if we build that out as the model, what that creates is it creates more opportunity, especially for our most vulnerable communities. It means you can breathe the air. It means kids can walk and bike to school. It means that older adults can age in place. It means that businesses and restaurants and retail can thrive in a space that no longer believes that, you know, the way that those businesses will succeed is that somebody from the suburbs will drive in park for an hour or two, go in and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, get in their car and leave. it, it it will completely change the way that we appreciate our space. And we will appreciate it because we'll no longer squander it. You know, if you look out of your house right now and you're just seeing cars parked or cars idling or cars moving and not other vibrant things that could support your city, they can coexist. And we don't have to take cars away from every single city. But if the majority of the use, has very significant negative externalities for most people, including the drivers, then our cities are continuing to fail. And they're failing us, and they're failing themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Right. Um, we, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up soon. But before we do, I really want to ask, what do you usually suggest or, or say to the people that want this kind of future that you, you're advocating for and you're fighting for, that you're working towards? But they, for example, they have one bus an hour, you know, or one bus every five hours going from their area to a busier area where they need to go. And they just can't see themselves um, doing what we're asking them to do, which is use alternative means of transport what should they do? Should they be like going out and advocating for these things to their mayors and local officials? Should they be trying to look for groups like TA to work with?
0: Well, I mean, to everybody who's listening, I would say as a starting point, I mean, this is a great first step. This is a a wonderful podcast. And there's so many great people and ideas that are sharing their perspective. You know, I would say a second piece is, you know, look up your city and if there's a, an advocacy group that focuses on transportation or public space, or if, even if there's an elected leader or a council member, you know, who's passionate about this work and talking about it and, and learn more and see if there are ways you can get involved. I mean, the reality is that, you know, most people, even if they, they really do care about this, they're not, you know, maybe they'll put some of their money in or maybe they'll put some of their hours in, but they obviously have no shortage of other concerns that they're dealing with. I think what we want people to understand is that there are tools and there's a language to talk about this. The same way that we use the word crash, not accident, is the same way that when you're, you know, reaching out to your elected official or you're talking about something that you're including transportation in to that discussion, or you're asking for transportation options, or you're you're elevating that and making that an issue that people need to respond to. And, you know, a lot of people ask, especially because we, we, you know, so much of our work is around bike advocacy is that they ask, you know, why, why are bike activists so angry? <laughs> I mean, anybody who rides a bike, yeah. especially in an American city, <laughs> you don't start angry. <laughs> you, don't start, you start with, with wonder. You, you have a bike and you yeah. think that the city is yours and you look around and you say, wait, this is not a genuine safe invitation from the city for me to bike. You know, they tell me biking is up, there's city bike on every corner. You know the way that we approach our infrastructure especially with bikes is like building half of a bridge i mean imagine in your city if the mayor just said like see that river over there um we're going to build a bridge but it only goes a quarter of the way over so you know we're going to build it and then you have to figure out how to get across the rest of the way so you just have you know people going to the end and then they jump off and swim and you know some of them get eaten by sharks but whatever you know we, we at least we, we gave you part of that way to get across yeah. What cities are doing when they build this this half network that's not protected, is they're giving people an invitation, they're celebrating the work that they're doing and they're not protecting the people who do it. A bike network should look the same way that a street network or a bus network or subway does. You can't just build it in these pieces and then realize, well, either people aren't using it or they're dying. You are responsible for them when you give them that invitation to do it. And it has to be safe, it has to be dignified, it has to be equitable. And yes, this is a sustainable mechanism to move our cities forward. So, you know, people just need to start to see these things first. Then they need to get angry, get activated, get connected, and then use their voice, use their agency, e- even use their money to help to support the people on the front line or more importantly, join the front lines. We need you.
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. I always think of uh, whenever I think of angry bikers, I always think of um Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin's dad always struck me when I was a kid. I never understood, you know. I would read the Calvin and Hobbes comic, and the dad would always come home angry, thinking, you know, saying like these damn car drivers, and they, they, nothing is safe for us anymore. And now, now in my life, when I'm I'm actually using, trying to use the conscientiously, trying to use a, a bike to go around a bit more. Like you said, it's it's horrendous. The, the amount of space is taken up by cars, but also. Um, I, I'd seen actually on, on Twitter recently um woman in New York being spat out at and, and, uh, and I don't know, y- yelled at or almost kind of assaulted with a car just for trying to bike in a bike lane. <laughs> like the, this, this does not make people feel safe at all. I think you're right. Um, okay, well, I, I think we, we've got to wrap it up now uh danny harris thank you so much for anyone that wants to go look at the work uh he and his team are doing you can go to transalt.org. um check out what the get check out what they're doing get involved donate all that stuff uh danny do you want to plug anything
0: i i'm I'm just grateful for the time and i would ask everybody you know if you're interested obviously learn more about transportation alternatives and and more importantly if there's a local bike or transportation advocacy organization um, please look them up and consider supporting them they're really doing incredible work um, and we really need this effort now more than ever
1: all right great danny thank you so much thank you very much thanks for listening we've got tons of other topics covered in our episodes from hydrology and renewables to romanian deforestation or even climate reparations we've also got a youtube channel and twitch where we'll be streaming soon as well as uploading all sorts of extra content for episode suggestions, comments, or anything like that, you can reach us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, our DMs are open, or even at humanodysseythepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find all the links you need at linktr.ee slash humanodysseypodcast. That's linktr.ee slash humanodysseypodcast. This week, we're sending big thanks to Nadia, Pablo, Shadia, and Tommy for supporting us financially on Patreon. If you too would like to contribute and sign up for a monthly subscription, get some rewards in exchange, you can also do that at our link tree on our Patreon.